0: Cells. 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 Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your
1: duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked.
0: You're listening to Shoulder of Orion, The Blade Runner Podcast. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, The Blade Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host...
1: Patrick Green. I have to say, Jamie, I'm a little bit unnerved tonight. Do you know
0: why that is? Because... Your sweet so much child. Good,
1: no, i will sweet so much child because uh, I'm, we're about to talk about the baseline test and I'm realizing that your baseline test is uh, looking me right in the eyes behind it your is. very head as we're doing this. And I'm kind of like getting a little bit freaked out that it's going to start interrogating me at some point. <laughs> you should tell the listeners about that because that's, that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. So I bought this from, I think it's called Wow Replicas or I don't remember. It's um, I can, I'll, I'll put the link in the, wow. in the show notes. It's called Wow Something, um, and it was about $183, and I purchased it in 2020, and I didn't put it together until about four months ago in 2022. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's awesome. It's uh, an exact uh, what it, like one-to-one scale. Yeah. I guess that's what, that's what it's called, replica of the baseline test, and it looks just like the real thing. It's awesome. I mean, if you go up close, you can see a couple of mistakes that I made. Um, if you look at the the little... The the larger glass piece it looks like there's a reflection, but it's actually glue. But you can't really tell. It's kind of cool. Yeah, you can't tell from uh, back but here, but yeah. At all. Um, I, I love it and it's something that I really wanted for a long time now I really want the VK test which I don't know if I'll ever be able to get that that is going to be expensive because that's got moving parts That's oh, that yeah breathes. well I don't even need it to move as long as it, if, it can be stationary but if it had moving parts oh my god it probably cost me a thousand dollars how cool would that should be just recording oh, co- a podcast with a <gasps> the and background. we could have like a live event and then have a VK test going at a live. we could event. fucking Wouldn't test cool? people at the live event we could do a baseline test and have people amazing. sit down and I'll just
1: yell at them over and over again from another room <laughs>
0: listeners we are game planning our next event which we don't know where when when it will be <laughs>
1: but it's happening right now and uh and you're gonna get we're gonna find out if you're a replicant or if you've yeah. deviated from baseline because yeah. uh, that's, that's a good segue <laughs> yeah but that was a really good segue but yeah that's what we're <laughs> here to talk about tonight you know initially this was going to be a two-parter in one uh twofer with the baseline test and the vk test but as happens literally every time Jamie and I talk about something, there was enough content for one episode for the VK. We probably could do a second one on the VK test, but we will spare everybody that tonight. Congratulations. And we're going to move on to the baseline test, which, although it does test different things and it d- different parameters and it has a different purpose, is very clearly a spiritual interlinked element. With uh, you know, and that very much intended that one, with the VK test. So the baseline test, of course, is new for 2049. It was for me the first time I saw that. The st- especially the post Sapper baseline test was like, I mean, I was like shook by that. The way, like, just the rhythm of that scene, the way Joe Walker edited it, the way Ryan Gosling played it, the way, and uh, as well as Mike Arnold, the guy on the other side of the microphone their interplay was so intense and then of course the soundtrack there and the sound design is just that high whistling almost like tinnitus mm-hmm. sound mm-hmm. in the background and i was like man like the movie already was completely working for me by that like it's not like i was like am i going to like it or not but the baseline test for me was when i was like i am going to love this movie.
0: Yes. Yes. And uh, the way it's cut when he's flying into L.A., they just cut it beautifully. So it's already begun. Yeah, it's just it's interesting because it's this beautiful, incredible scene. But it's also really fucking scary uh, because he's being grilled. Like, are you still not human? Are you still an, auto- an automaton, essentially? Are you within your parameters? Are you still emotionless? Are you still without empathy? That's what it's asking him. Uh, by those questions so it's a curious thing
1: yeah i want to i want to correct myself uh i have the art and soul of blade runner open and uh, i was not looking at it when i i was proud of myself for remembering the guy's name but it was actually mark it's mark arnold was the guy on the other side of the baseline (laughs) test not Mike. Arnold. i was close (laughs) um yeah and the way that you're you're absolutely right the way that that we start with you know it's already happening Audibly, but visually, we're still flying into LA into the police station, but it's already unfolding, and, and already that soundtrack is going. It's really amazing, and I think in addition to what we'll get into tonight, which is the philosophical ramifications of a world where a baseline test exists, from a film standpoint and from a, like a Denny Villeneuve standpoint, uh, I think it's a wonderful gateway into one of his best qualities as a director, which is a quality that came up quite a bit when we had Mark Mangini on, the guy who was the supervising sound editor for the film. This was three or four years ago at this point, which is pretty crazy. Um, But, you know, when Mark was on, he was talking about that sequence that's become probably the most singularly iconic image of the whole movie, which is when Kay's walking into Las Vegas. And it's that, you know, red, orange hue around him and about how, you know, I asked him why there was no music during that and why there was no sound, because the first time I saw it, I was so struck by the silence there, right? And his response to it, of course, it's okay if people haven't listened to this episode or don't remember it from four years ago, but his response was that there was actually underscoring, that, that Ben Walfish had written music for that. Um, and there was also sound design, like there was, you know, howling wind and there were noises. And they were running uh, through, they were looking either through dailies or through some sort. I, think, I don't think it was dailies. I think they were going through post production and they were matching it there. And as a cue to insert like the next sound cue or the next music cue, they had a little click noise basically Uh, and they've didn't they forgot to play or they didn't play the sound and music that was supposed to go there so all they had was the click and like in that moment everybody was like oh shit that's what it has to be and that's why they ended up only having basically a really loud click in that moment a boom Mm -hmm. um but it's because in in the moment they pivoted completely the baseline test for me is another great window into how denny villeneuve reacts and responds to spontaneous moments of greatness on set Uh, i'm sure people know the basic story behind this but the scene the way it's storyboarded is just those three lines of the nabokov poem of the, the novel pale fire which of course is actually for those of you who haven't read it it's a it's a metafictional work so there's the poem pale fire which is 999 lines long and the poem is the text of the novel, but there's also like the editor who's chiming in throughout the poem with notes and with like a foreword and an afterward. And the editor, but this is all, of course, just Nabokov as different people. And the dialogue of the editor and the poem is what creates the meta-narrative that the novel takes place in, which is really cool. So initially there were just those, those three lines of the poem. And then Ryan Gosling, in the moment did the spontaneous eight minute improvisation where he did basically an acting exercise that he'd been taught where if you interrogate a word enough, if you basically say the word as many different ways as you can to derive as many possible shadings of meaning from it, you can really, A, learn your material, but you can really learn a lot of the emotional landscape underneath it. And so just kind of messing around in the moment, he did that with the Nabokov text, and he was dividing it up and just really hitting words like distinct over and over again, interlinked over and over again. Um, and to his credit, Villeneuve was like, let's go with that. They did m- multiple takes that were all eight minutes long. That was just Ryan Gosling doing this acting exercise. And um, they were able to edit it down into this slightly shorter version that we get in the movie. But it retained that same sense of like... There's no way you could have planned for that. You know, like that's something that happened because an actor was in character in this environment and he was brought himself to this moment and himself in this moment made the spontaneous decision. And Denny Villeneuve was like, that's the right decision for that character. And it was just, I, I think, a testament to how uh, how collaborative
0: and generous and spontaneous he really is as a filmmaker. I think the scene is uh, amazing and it it plays like poetry, not just because of the poem that they're reciting but rhythmically the editing it it plays like this investigation into the human psyche which exactly it is exactly what's happening it's the psyche of a replicant being investigated for any emotional response it is the vk test but it's a different version of it whereas the vk test was there to test to see well are you emotional and if you are that means you're a replicant you're not supposed to be here whereas this baseline test is are you emotional? Are you responding emotionally to these words? We know you're not. We know you're a replicant. So it's not trying to find out if if whoever they're you know interviewing is or isn't. It's if you aren't responding to these questions correctly. What's the next step? And you have to pass this test. So it's I, I don't know. I don't know enough about replicants, certainly within the world of 2049, to know, are they nervous about this type of thing? I don't know what their emotional state is, if they even have an emotional state. In fact, Ryan Gosling plays K very emotionless, except for a couple of scenes here and there, which was, you know, when he goes to investigate the memory and he replays the memory in his head while Stalina's kind of watching through her, whatever that is she's watching them through. Um, and he gets really emotional there. But aside from that, and the scene when he finds the horse, those he's rather emotionless. He's just kind of observant. But that's what he was hired to do, just to observe and do his job, to be emotionless, to be without empathy. Even though what's interesting, and I'm going to get back to the baseline test in a minute, but when, he's, when the film opens up and he's sitting in Sapper's house and he's talking to Sapper, and Sapper says whatever. He's like, you know, Mr. M- uh, Morton, if taking you in is an option, then what? what's the rest of it?
1: Uh, Yeah, then I'm all for it, basically. Right? Yeah,
0: I don't remember yeah. the exact line. And there's some, a bit of a connection there. You can feel it between the two. that He knows Sapper's a, a replicant. Sapper understands that he's a replicant, too. So there's this moment of connection between the two of them. Um, but then, you know case programming or whatever it is clicks in and he does his job and the vk test or the baseline test then makes sure that he can continue to do his job it's interesting i what i want to know about the baseline test which we don't know is is this something that's every time he checks in for work he takes his test or is it every time he retires someone he takes this test you see the test twice in the film once is right after he retires Sapper. So I'm thinking when he retires another replicant, because he's retiring his own kind, they need to know he's okay. Um, so of course they're going to, you know, uh, give him the test. And then the second time is after they find him outside of Stalines, which they call Stalines an upgrade center, which you don't really hear much about that. Like it's an upgrade center. So can replicants get upgrades? Can they get emotional upgrades? maybe they can and maybe they because they found him outside of a an upgrade center um, they're worried like what's he done what's he done to himself what's happening and then of course they see him take the test and he's just in in the interior he's haywire he's all over the place um, it's it's really terrifying too. Again, it's as cool as I think this thing is. And of course there it is in my wall. It's also this really horrible piece of equipment.
1: It is. And you know, there's something similar to the VK test. And you know, we talked a lot of in the last episode, how the VK tests design feels very organic in a way. Like it feels sort of human. It has like an Oculus, like an eye and it has lungs and those bellows that are breathing. Uh, similarly the baseline test feels human to me but in a very different way it feels like we're inside almost a human right because there's the actual mechanical apparatus of course but there's also the room that it's in which to me is just as much a part of the baseline test as the baseline test itself right it's this like very small like six foot by six foot white cell with a black floor and that's it and then like a small observation port behind him so there's this like isolation almost this like natal almost like going into some kind of womb or something where you're just completely encased in this sensory deprivation where all you have is this voice on the other end
0: Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. When you're not
1: performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked.
0: What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Dreadfully. Dreadfully. What's it like to be filled with dread? Dreadfully. Dreadfully. Do you like being separated from other people? Distinct. Distinct. Dreadfully distinct. Dreadfully distinct. Dreadfully distinct. Dark. 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 Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Within one stem. Within one stem. And dreadfully distinct. And dreadfully distinct. Against the dark. Against the dark. A tall white fountain plate. A tall white fountain plate. You're not even close to baseline.
1: So going back to some things you brought up to me, um, like, so, so K is a Nexus nine, of course, right? So he's got all of these very intense behavioral inhibitors working the whole time, because that was how Nexus models were able to proceed was that if they were controllable and as long as they were basically like really obedient dogs, you know, we could, we could keep making them or Wallace could. So that's kind of the context that K is, is built into. and, of course that's what we see him functioning really well as so even you know you can look at the sapper inter- interaction through the lens of maybe there's a connection there i kind of choose to because that's feels more human to me but it also could have been like k knows that there'll be a lot more collateral damage if sapper were to get violent he knows it's going to take a lot more effort he knows that he'll probably get injured and if, of course he does, he does actually get injured in that interaction so it could also just be that for the purposes of being an efficient retirer, you know, uh, he wants Sapper to just kind of come with him. And throughout the rest of the movie, you know, until he has that uh, that first real emotional outburst that you're talking about with the memory, to me, there there is still a whole internal world with Kay, and I think that's probably Ryan Gosling's doing. In that, very clearly, it, he is complicated. But mm-hmm. the what's so fascinating about his performance and about the character in general is that there it's almost like there's a lid like directly in front of that. Like his face wants to be doing more because his the rest of him is, but like, but it's unable to, because he has like an, an inhibitor, you know, really built in there. Mm-hmm. He's not allowed to show that to the rest of the world. Um, and, you know, as we see with the Sapper baseline test, like he's really good at controlling his emotions. He also just didn't seem very upset by that interaction. He seemed a lot more upset by the way he was treated, you know, mm-hmm. by just, you know, assholes in Los Angeles than, than what happened with Sapper. Um, What's fascinating, though, is that, like, to me, after that first memory moment where he sees what may or may not have been him in the past with the horse, like, from that point for, through the rest of the movie, I do see a lot of, like, visible emotional life from Kay. Um, you know, even what, during the tears and rain sequence when he's lying down in the snow, like, although he's not you know, emoting massively, it feels emotional to me, not just as a film moment, but as a performative moment. Like, I feel like Ryan Gosling is like being more deliberately
0: emotive with his performance. Like he's emotionally letting go.
1: Yes, exactly. And like that that inhibitor wall has sort of come up somewhat because once you fail the baseline test, like you don't go back to it, right? Once you become that close to being a human, um, at least in terms of the replicants, because I think... It's tricky because if we're talking about earlier replicant models like Nexus fours and fives like clearly they would have failed the Nexus sixes that we see in in the first film they would have failed the hell out of that baseline test because they were emotional train wrecks, right but the 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 Nexus models that we get the eight the nines in in uh, 2049 like they are built very very differently. And so this is like the test to figure out, whether or not they are still controllable. And I think that that, in terms of the priorities that it forecasts or that it broadcasts, says a lot about the world of 2049 as opposed to 2019. In 2019, the, the concern wasn't whether you were controllable or not. It was whether we could tell if you were a replicant, right? And so like, that was a world where the technology had gotten the, the, you know, the cart had gotten out in front of the horse. I feel like that's the second time I've used that metaphor in this two part series. And I don't even know if I'm saying it right. Is it the cart before the horse? Yeah. The cart before yeah, the horse. Yeah. Cause it's like the horse is usually pulling the cart. Right. But now yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I guess I never really <laughs> thought about that, but in in that sense, in that case, it's like the, the Nexus models had become indistinguishable more quickly, maybe than people had planned. And so they were trying to like, you know, get a hold of them and, and figure out where they were. But this is a world post blackout, post twenty nineteen, post all the stuff that was happening, post global famine, um, post you know irradiation uh, incidents in Las Vegas and elsewhere. One can assume you know post climate catastrophes with the rising sea w- sea levels and the sepulveda wall that we see. So this is a world where like the concern isn't anymore are you a replicant or not? Because I think this is a world that basically kind of gave up on trying to figure that out a long time ago, but it's a world that says like, I don't care what you are as long as I can control you as long as I have a leash around your neck. Right. Yes.
0: Are you dangerous to us? Yeah.
1: Are you a threat? And so that of course comes out in other ways in the world too, in the ways that we see the, you know, the sex worker replicants being used and all these different aspects culturally Um, you know, like they're, they're out in plain sight but they're under very specific circumstances allowed to exist. And K, mm-hmm. it, you know, I mean, it's fitting that the baseline test, test ends up going down this hole on, do they keep you in a little box, right? Because not only is he taking this test in a little box, and not only does he leave that test to go home to a little box, but his life is a little box. His, yes. like his entire experience is like that white baseline room. It's so tightly constrained constrained and because of that he's able to pass
0: the baseline test because there's nothing to distract him from it right so and yeah yeah, i think what's interesting is does he realize does he realize that he lives in a little box does he realize his life is in a little box he doesn't because he's doing what he was created to do and so they're asking him when you're not performing your duties do they keep you in a little box does he know that it's almost like does he know he's sentient That's, it's a sentience question. Does he know that something else is happening larger than himself? And if he doesn't, he's good. What's interesting about the baseline test is that it's almost like, to bring some religion into this, uh, the snake in the Garden of Eden, where the the snake is asking Adam and Eve, well, don't you know that you're this? Or, you know, or don't you know that you're naked? Or asking very specific questions to see how aware of their surroundings they are. Of course, that mythology veers off a little bit different, but it's the same idea where this serpent is seeing if there's a life beyond their programming by God. And the baseline test is doing the very same thing. Conversely, the VK test is essentially a lie detector. I feel like it's a lie detector. A little bit more than that. It's not obviously just a lie detector, but they ask questions to see if they get a certain response. And I'm sure that there are some replicants who have passed that test. Like, you know, I mean, again, to reference something that we all did together, Gethsemane, there is scenes, uh, in that audio drama, which everyone should listen to if they haven't, um, it's on YouTube where the replicants in this story, in our story passed, they knew how to pass uh, VK test. They just, they just got to this point where they were like, okay, we can do this. Um, So the VK test became a little bit antiquated, whereas the baseline test, again, it wasn't about whether or not you're a replicant, it's whether or not you are controllable, whether or not you are a threat to us. And if you're a threat to us, you're a threat to everyone else. Um, And again, as we've been doing, bringing this back into our own world, um, we live with many different versions of that, whether it's... um, questionnaires that we get because we're customers at certain places or questionnaires we get from our job. How are you doing? How how can you do better? Trying to find out what our, our current state is. And maybe in some jobs, in some corporations, they can detect who is the whistleblower, who might be potentially a threat to them. Um, so there's a lot going on with it, so much going on with it. And I think um, the baseline test for me is probably mo- the most realistic of the two in terms of where we're headed. The baseline test is is a very dangerous tool for humanity. Of course, in Blade Runner, it's not a tool for humans. It's a tool to, for replicants only. You know, and that room is for replicants only. But there is the question, maybe, well, I guess, I guess at that point, Replicants have the, the, the numbers in their eyes, on their left eyes, so they don't have to worry about who's a replicant because they know. They can just look under their eye. But there are some replicants like Sapper who um, they don't know. Um, they only know based off of you know reports, and then they can't baseline test Sapper. Although Sapper did have the serial code, but he was an open-ended replicant. So I don't know if we really kind of investigated that. But, well, because yeah, he was at Nexus it's, 8. Right. So they, right.
1: they were allowed to live normal lifespans, uh, which is, which is weird. But whereas, you know, K well, so Nexus nines are, they are, they are not right. Their operational life is short again. I think in a, you know, I'm, I'm going to look that up while we're talking because we did do a whole replicant series, but I'm honestly forgetting.
0: Nexus nines do have the four year lifespan. The ones before do not. Yeah. That's what I thought.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'll I'll verify just to be, just to be safe, um, but yeah. Th-
0: already, I already caught you on that before. <laughs> did you? We had did you this, really? Yeah, we've mm-hmm.
1: already had an argument about this.
0: We, yeah, because we kind of went back and forth, and I said no, Patrick, and then later on we looked, and you're like, oh yeah, Oh,
1: shit. Uh, I feel like the baseline test is testing me right now.
0: Fuck joy. Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but what's so what's so fascinating is is uh, is that the way that the baseline test is administered is is also. It is so frightening, right? Like what I, what mm-hmm. I love about the baseline test is the gloves really come off of the voight Kampf test, right? The voight Kampf test is very, it's playful. Like the way the questions are asked are yes. kind of cutesy and it's sort of like, you know, some of them are funny, you know, as, as we see in the movie. Um, but in general, it's a, it's a much more kind of relaxed environment, similar to how a polygraph is, you know, we were talking about lie detector tests, you know, those typically start pretty relaxed and then gradually get a little bit less to try to like elicit more of an emotional response from somebody. Um, But the baseline test. So the first time we see it, it's definitely not as intensely administered as it is the second time we see it. The first time we see it, it feels to me like standard operating procedure. I have been through a retirement incident. I'm going to get debriefed and tested. You know, after that, I'll talk to Joshi and then I go home. Um, but it's going to be br- brisk and it's going to be, you know, gruff. And it's not necessarily because he's trying to freak me out. It's because like, we got to get through the questions. I know what they are. He's going to push my buttons a little bit and I'm going to make it through and it's going to be okay. The second time we see it and it's like, he's at the, he's like chum, you know, thrown into a shark tank. Uh, and he's just, he's a mess. Kay is a mess, but also the voice, Mark Arnold's voice on the other end, is just really, really grating and it's berating him. And it's just, yes. it's just falling apart. And um, so I feel like the way that the test is administered is specific to the incident in which it's being called for. I don't, in my personal headcanon, think that every single LAPD replicant officer is given a baseline test after every single mission i do think it's post retirement so it's like you've been through something that could traumatize you if you were able to be traumatized so let's double check to make sure that you're not because if you're not then that means that you've deviated from your baseline from the in the baseline being the way that we programmed you to operate and so for the same reason why we get rid of a, de- a, a defective computer that has malware on it or something right that we can't get rid of you know we would get rid of this piece of technology that's kind of what how they're looking at it um you know, if after a retirement event, you can't deal, then you're no longer necessary. And to go back to like the, the way that this functions in our world today, I, I always think like, for example, and this is this is not I'm not trying to, equivo- you know, equivocate these at all. But I think of bereavement time at work as an interesting sort of you know, like echo of this, because like I, I mentioned on I don't remember if it was P.O. or Stroll Ryan, but we, we had a, we had a death in our extended family that was pretty hard to deal with. And, you know, all of us had to plan all the end of life stuff and the in post end of life stuff. And we had to like divide up our bereavement days to make that happen. Right. Um, so it's like, you know, like my brother-in-law took two bereavement days and I took two bereavement days and we kind of rotated our bereavement time out so that we could just like get, you know, shit ready for a funeral and all these different things. Um, And so that's like a a very kind of passive window into it. But there is something similar where like our workplaces and my workplace is very it's feminist and it's wonderful. But like, I can't just take all of the time off that I want to to deal with something like that. Um, You know, like you you have to get back to work again. And uh, and it's it's weird to see the ways that that like a gentler version of this, like you were saying with questionnaires at places of employment, you know, or for example, I'm a member of a union and I and I can tell when management, even in a really good organization, is kind of pushing back on the union a little bit because I will get weird questions about things and I'll be like, oh yeah, I feel like this is going to become a bargaining, you know, issue that I'm just not aware of yet. Because like we have to test the boundaries in a capitalist Society, even in a nonprofit, yeah. And again, I'm not trying to badmouth my nonprofit at all because it's a wonderful place. But, but my my point being that like the way the 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 society in which we operate depends on us being productive. That's like something that is written into everything, whether it be a nonprofit, whether it be a hedge fund. Like it, its success is measured primarily by its efficacy. So, for example, at my place of work, we work on inequality and hunger and you know uh, the rights of disempowered people around the world. And, like, that is a very noble kind of lofty thing to do, but it's measured very specifically by the efficacy of donor dollars, by returns on investments, and by if X was, you know, was successful in solving Y. And if not, like it doesn't matter if it was for the right emotional reasons or if we did our best, like at the end of the day, it was unsuccessful. And that's something that we have to report on. And it's really, really bad. Um, and so even like in areas like that in our world, like if, if we are not operating efficiently, then like we are not going to pass muster. And so like you take that into a place like 2049 where it's a police environment, um, you know, you, you can very quickly see like why that slippery slope would make a lot of sense, because that's kind of the the end result of a society where that really becomes the dominant thing people care about, whether not not only whether you're dangerous, but whether you're effective anymore.
0: As you were talking, I was thinking about how we treat police or not, not really so much how we treat police, but when police, the police in our world go through some really major things, uh, whether they're having to address a shooting or maybe one of their own gets killed. The police, of course, in, in, in our world, it's the, it, they've been at the center of attention, certainly in 2020. It's a, a really thankless job. Um, it's a very demanding job. And it's a job that pay, doesn't pay very well, quite honestly. And there's not a lot of training. But when these police go through, my cousin was a policeman for a bit. When they go through some really stressful things, they're debriefed. They're, they're brought in and sat down and spoken to to find out how they're doing. To find out, are you okay? Do you need to talk about this? What's going on with you? Just because oftentimes, certainly within the ranks of the police, some of their trauma can iterate into domestic violence. It can iterate into spousal abuse. It can iterate into substance abuse. And so they want to nip that in the bud. And so they do that by debriefing them. They have um, on-site or on-call therapists where the, they're like, hey, no, you need to go sit down and talk to someone. And oftentimes the police don't want to or there's pride, but they're forced to in order for them to get back to work. If it's a too much of a traumatic thing, they're like, you need to take this, these few days off and you are required to go and talk to our therapist or whatever they're called before you return to work. And all of that's written down and some of that information shared so that the ranking officer, the lieutenants, whoever, the chiefs, who, whoever's involved knows, okay, this is the emotional state of our officer. So some of it, like with K, makes a little bit of sense. The way we approach it as a society is a very human way. Are you okay? Are you emotionally balanced? Are you able to engage? Are you able to stay in contact with, who, like stay connected to who you are emotionally? Are you turned off emotionally? Are you turning into steel? Because those are the warning signs. Whereas with K, it's the complete inverse of that. Is he still steel? Is he turned off? Is he shut down? Good, good. Because to do what he has to do, we need him to be that way. So it, it's an interesting thing. Again, when we talk about a lack of empathy that's what that's what the baseline test is actually looking for. It's empathy. It's empathy not just for maybe what they're doing, but for themselves. How, how are they feeling about themselves? Do they feel vulnerable? Do they feel used? Do they feel bad about what they just did? because if they do and as for a human, All of those things are good things to feel because it tells us they're human. They do not want a human in these positions. They want someone who is a non-human, someone cold and calculating and um, robotic, essentially. I mean, again, it goes back to the discussion, what are replicants? We still don't really know what they are. We don't know how they're made. We don't know anything about them. We don't know if there's some robotic parts Within them, I mean, we see Rachel's bones, but we don't even know what those bones are. Um, they look degraded or degraded or whatever. Um, degradated? I think it's that's definitely it's degraded. Degraded. <laughs> degraded? We don't really know what's happening with them to make them what they are. and But we do know that replicants can't share organs with humans. They're just incompatible. The world, you know, Wallace and Tyrell has made these very non-human looking humans um very robotic looking humans um and they need them to be to i mean imagine being a sex slave i don't know what sex slaves or maybe not a sex slave but i mean that's essentially what they are but a pleasure model i would imagine they need they have to have baselines as well b- because of what they go through or maybe they're just like k and they're there's just kind of a gauze over their eyes and they're like okay And they don't, it's not pleasurable. I would imagine even with the pleasure models, they might even create them so they can fake pleasure, but they can't feel it. Just like with Kay, you know, Kay has joy, but does he feel her or is he just interested in, they just have enough of a person there for him to not feel lonely. So it keeps him at baseline so that he can pass these tests. So it would be interesting. I I don't know if we'll ever see this. Maybe we will in the series, if it ever drops, or if we ever hear any more about it, Um, what, Other models of replicants have to go through to find out if they're at baseline, because if you're a pleasure model or a medic or a imagine if you're a soldier and you're a replicant and you're off your baseline, that means the humans are in trouble. If you're off your baseline, that means the weapon that you have in your hand is a replicant and you're not on baseline. That means there's a potential slaughter about to happen because they're feeling more. They're feeling conflicted. It's A fucking mess honestly the more we dive into it the more we kind of explore um what it means to keep human looking people non-human
1: it is a fucking mess uh you know what else is a mess jamie is uh nexus nines have an open-ended lifespan i just looked it up so so they are not limited to four years um are you sure? Yeah, that's what the Blade Runner wikia says. I mean, unless you can find something that disputes that. But the customer can specify we did. how long they want them to we, live.
0: Oh, oh, okay. That's what it was. That's what we found out before. It's They're made with an open-ended lifespan, but oftentimes customers can specify. So we don't know if Kay had a four-year lifespan or if he had an open-ended lifespan. I would imagine they didn't. I would imagine there's a reason why Sapper um, was brought in you know Mm -hmm. um i think part of that reason was because he has an open-ended lifespan you
1: know yeah and he he was unaccounted Uh, for he was a serial number that went rogue right i think that but i think that goes to the same reason as why k i agree probably does not have a four-year lifespan is uh is because I think like they don't care how long he lives as long as they can continue testing to make sure he's still controllable mm-hmm. and to make mm-hmm. sure that he's doing only his job and he's staying within a very narrowly defined lane, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and again, I think that like there's also something about this world that speaks of the trauma that humanity has been through. I think in a way too, like it's because replicants are so easy for us to empathize with for so many different ways i think we tend to really look at this as a story seen through replicants eyes and we look at the rest of of humanity and the people who made them as like pretty much across the board evil i mean to me like the way that human the people who are definitely human are portrayed especially in 2049 is like pretty negative like we have joshi who's this like drunk power hungry you know angry woman who does have some humanity I within her feel but,
0: like she's drunk and power hungry and angry i think that she's unhappy yeah she's i think that she but I, f-
1: I feel like the the joshi that we see is no is no longer maybe necessarily actively those things but has but i feel like she just like she got to where she wanted to get to and now she's just sort of burned out It's like the wheel yeah yeah right yeah. yeah yeah so she's not actively like that in the movie but um but she is still authoritarian, and you know, blah blah blah. Although she does let let Kay escape, which is which is pretty cool, um, you know. And we have Wallace, who's like a fucking I don't know what he is, um, you know. The, the the people who are definitely people in this are not like portrayed super nicely, I think. Um, and I think part of it's because like the the way the movie is framed is through replicants' eyes, but also because the people that we're seeing have really been through a lot, you know. And I I mean I, I say that as a human in the year 2022 who feels like he's been through a shitload the last few years as well but imagine if like that never stopped and it just accelerated right because in 2022 in blade runner they had the blackout which was which completely destabilized all of society like all of technology was all of a sudden subject to being destroyed by this emp device and records were wiped out people had no idea you know where their family lineage was anymore they lost records of like you know. Their their, their relatives, they lost their health records, they lost their ability to treat illness, they lost the ability to make food effectively, they lost all of these things that they depended on, and then society basically collapsed like a few years after that, um, before Wallace and the protein farming and all that stuff started up. So there really was like the humanity... And then it
0: came back for Black Lotus for a minute. <laughs> it
1: did. In the world of Black Lotus, apparently there was nothing uh, at all. But like the, the humanity that we see in 2049 really is desperate and and i doesn't desperate doesn't even feel appropriate because they don't seem desperate they just seem lost they seem like Mm -hmm. they're so beaten down that they they don't see not only humanity anymore but they don't see a point anymore and um so like what we're seeing is a product of trauma like all of these you know I guess what I'm trying to say with this is I feel like we always kind of shit on ourselves as a species when we talk about these movies so much because we look at like, oh, look what we're doing to the environment. Look how we like to control people. Look how capitalism is running us into the ground. All these things we always talk about um, that are true. But like in the context of 2049, that's a world where like there is no redeeming quality to anything anymore. It's like just that. And it's really sad. So the baseline test, as aggressive and as toxic and as terrible as it is, is there as like a tool for dealing with trauma because they don't want to go through what they went through again. But they also don't have the capacity to work anymore without having replicants there to help. Um, You know, of course, they also use replicants for all sorts of other horrible things. But like at at the end of the day, I get the sense that like humanity realized by the time 2036 came around that like that we're never going to get back on track again if they didn't have replicants. And so like the strange truce that they made was we can only have replicants we can control. We can control how long they live. We can control what they feel. And if we lose control of either of those parameters, if we lose a serial number and, you know, one of them goes and starts doing protein farming somewhere, then we reserve the right to eradicate them instantly. Um, And we see that, you know, in, in the baseline test, If when Kay fails the second one, you know, he's instructed to return for debriefing and Joshi basically says like, you know, he has she's going to give him one more chance to take it, you know, the next day. Um, But like the 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 implicit meaning there really is that if he fails it again, he's going to be retired instantly. The penalty of fucking that baseline test up isn't losing your job. Right isn't losing your pension it's losing your life it's being summarily executed uh so like the 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 replicants that we see the nexus 9s that we get you know as far, as far as K goes are replicants born of a society that has just eaten itself from the inside out and their isolation is reflective of that the little boxes that they put the replicants in i think are also the little boxes that they made for themselves those people who were not able to get off world and were kind of stuck. So there's something really beautifully bleak about that and about how replicants, you know, we talk all the time about how they reflect the societies that create them. The replicants of 2019 are passionate and they are interesting and they are flawed and they strive and they escape and they run, you know? The replicants in 2049 are walter androids from from uh from covenant right they are uh they are just automatons again like they've been returned to being just basically pets um there's something really kind of deeply sad about that to me
0: it is sad and i think it's interesting how we connect how i've connected to rachel over the course of my life certainly over the course of the show as uh in conversation um And Batty and Pris and uh, Zora and um, Leon, and there's so much emotion in those replicants. They're just a completely different breed. But I find it interesting in 2049, even when the replicants are together, when they're in the basement of that church and they're talking, there is this kind of cold. Uh, countenance to them they're very they're talking but there's not a lot of emotion they there's a lot of information passing but there's not a lot of emotion passing but we imbue them we imbue k more i think with our own emotion but he is again despite those flourishes that we were talking about earlier he's rather emotionless so we as the audience are then imbuing him with what we think he's feeling we think he loves joy we don't know if he loves Joy. We don't know if he sees Joy as more than just this, oh, interesting, because that's how he looks at her. Very, very interesting. Um, Kay is, was made, and they paid for him to be an automaton. They paid for him to be Walter, to put his head down, to make himself small, to say yes or no, to say yes, ma'am, to say no, ma'am. That's what they made. And uh, I, it's interesting. And again, the baseline test is making sure that all, all of those those inhibitors or whatever are functioning so that the product is still good. If you look at where humanity is, when humanity is doing that, when humanity is making whatever they are, creatures, hybrids, whatever, I don't know, robots, I don't know what they are. It says a lot about humanity, how far we have come from being empathetic, how much lack of empathy. And, you know, even in the world today, we're, Struggling through a lot of lack of empathy right now. Certainly, in the last few days, um, we're we're uh, a world, uh, a a country that has decided to stop having it, stop having empathy, stop doing certain things that are inalienable human rights, um, and what that does to a society when you stop protecting rights of people, what how that affects people, and then but then you know you go to 2049 and you have a whole essentially a race of. People that have been made without empathy, that also have been made by people without empathy, but that's not their intent to not have empathy. They're just trying to get a good product. And we've had this discussion before. I don't want to go, go too far into it, but it's the cyclical thing. Well, we need them to not have empathy so they can do a better job, but by not but by you making something without empathy, you're losing your own empathy, too. Um, and then you put a machine there to make sure that they don't have empathy. It's just weird, sick mindset.
1: And of course, it, it brings to mind the sorts of technologies that are emerging from the society that we live in now, you know, which not even get into social media, but even just with like, how much we want things automated, like, you know, we, we and instead of, Like, for example, having better training for drivers, like we just want our cars to just drive themselves so we don't crash into each other anymore. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. You know, instead of wanting to make decisions for ourselves, we want an algorithm to give us the highest rated local deli to get a Reuben from and to have it delivered Mm -hmm. to us by not even having to go on a phone anymore, but just by talking to our house, which will then tell us what we want and remember it for next time and then feed us more of it and more of it. Um, you know, like I, I, there, there are times when I'm even afraid to say like a product name in our house because I know one of our fucking smart devices is going to pick up on it and it's going to start advertising mm-hmm. stuff to us because it's mm-hmm. it's weird. It's like unsettling. And yep. the creep of that technology is very slow, but it really says a lot about us. And the technologies that our society in 2022 in this world that we live in have chosen to, you know, uh, prioritize our social media. It is having algorithms make decisions for us it's having basically to to me the dominant technological feature of this era is self-referential loops and what i mean by that is if you want something here's more of it and here's more of it and here's more of it so instead of loops they become spirals going in towards some kind of terrible center you know and we see that of course with algorithms but we also just see that with the conversations that we have because we end up you Know so encamped with people that have similar viewpoints to us that we just kind of assume everybody has that viewpoint, and I don't even mean on social media, I mean, even at this point, you know, with like we saw with this incredibly controversial and upsetting for many of us Supreme Court decision just a few days ago. Um, you know, like I, I know offhand of many people who will see it very differently than I do, and I just am not going to talk to them, like, I just don't want to hear that, right? And like, that's my fault but it's also the fault of the fucking algorithms that we get trapped up in that continue to self-reference and continue to give us more of what we want but it even comes Mm -hmm. into play of course with that deli thing that i was talking about because then like all of the systems we use will be giving us more and more information about rubens and delis and so eventually we that's all we want to eat anymore because we're just kind of told that like that's our personal brand um and there's something obviously solipsistic about that. There's something and to, to me solipsism is also really at the heart of this whole thing because especially in You got to explain that word. So so it's <laughs> so in terms of like only being able to see ourselves like our individual experience like our like my the kingdom of my head is the only thing that exists and mm-hmm. that's the only reality you know that I have. That's kind of a solipsistic worldview, right? So What I think has happened is we have fallen into this deep sense of solipsism as a culture, and we've had an enabling environment in the form of COVID that has made it even worse. And so all these people who were already having a harder time empathizing with others and getting out of their own head were like literally physically locked in boxes again. And that just made it even worse. And so I, I this is kind of a long-winded way of getting at it but I I do feel like there's something scary in the way that technology looks now and feels now. And imagine if like that never stopped and then that technology were able to destroy us which who who knows maybe it's already happening now and we're just not aware of it yet. But like that's the world that the humans in 2049 are living in. So the baseline test like you know it I think the reason why it affects us so much is it's like hammering home on this thing that we're all afraid of, but we're not really articulating ever, which is what are we willing to do to subjugate others to our bidding? And like, what kind of world would we have where that would be normalized enough that we wouldn't even bat an eye at it, that it would become part of standard operating procedure? Like, what would it be like to live in a world where if you deviated from baseline, you were just killed for it? And the scariest part of that whole thing is that it doesn't feel that far off to us, right? In the last episode, you talked about the, the Chinese Communist Party's, uh, you know, social credit system. That, that's a pretty extreme example, but that, that is a real example of it. But there's also just examples in our everyday life that are creeping in that we're not even aware of all the time. And the way the baseline test comes up, I think, really hammers on that for us and we feel almost like we're being interrogated there's a real sense you know when k is getting the baseline administered my heartbeat increases with him like i i feel threatened i feel mm-hmm. like oh my god like i i would mm-hmm. i would be falling apart by this point but he's not because we built him to do that um and so what kind of a culture would build people
0: to do that like what kind of a culture would would have that normalized Um, Yeah, it's scary culture that has already lost connection with itself. And I think we are in a time where technology, yes, it can be a very wonderful thing. But right now it is driving a wedge between us as people. It's driving a wedge between us as not just a society, but even what we enjoy as fans. You know, a, a show is coming out on Amazon and the amount of vitriol and mean posts And horrible, I don't know, horrible comments left about this show and what it might be. And because of people, there are people in color, of color included in Tolkien's world. It's so devastating to me to see, to see people just being so horrible to each other. And technology is fueling this. It's fueling it. And it can be a bandwagon. And it was something that I had to learn about myself. You know, it's something that you had to learn where you're like, you know what? I got to take a step back because this isn't good. I had to do the very same thing. And I had to completely retool how I addressed technology, what I was going to look at. It was also affecting my friendships, too. Being so one track mind about something, being such a gatekeeper about something that I couldn't see any other perspective. And technology drives that. It drives it. And the media drives it because the media wants to sell papers or whatever. And so how do you do that? You do that with outrageous posts. You do that with outrageous topics. That means people are going to click on them. That means they want people angry so that they can discuss so they can be, you know, the top 20 trending topics of the day. And that's what's scary about technology. And I think the baseline test is the flower of that or the fruit of that. That's kind of where it's leading where, I mean, again, it's kind of a, it's in a different, it's in a parallel universe to us. But it's something that could really be true. And um, in many ways, like in China, the baseline test is a real thing. You cannot travel if you don't have enough social credits. Point of fact. I don't know if it's everywhere in China, but I know it's definitely in certain sectors or regions of China. So that means you have to act within a a certain um, parameter as a person so that you can check out, so that you can be seen as okay, so that people like you enough in the government. Likes you enough so that you can travel, because you know if you're Chinese, you can travel out of the country, um, but if you don't have a good enough social credits, you cannot travel out of the country. I think this this discussion about technology is really what it's is. It, it's really what's at the heart of the baseline. It's uh, this this tool to decide whether or not we're human. To decide not just if we're human, it's a tool to decide whether or not we have empathy. And lack of empathy is at uh, this this through line through both Blade Runner films and the larger world. Um, what are we when we are people without empathy? What are we when we rule and when we create um, other people or whatever without empathy? What does that say about us? And it doesn't say much. It doesn't say. It doesn't say anything great. Yeah, it definitely does not say anything great. I guess in closing, um,
1: I think, part of why the baseline test speaks to us so well in the universe of Blade Runner is for exactly what you were just saying which is that there's a through line not just with the films but with the with the book with 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 Dream of Electric Sheep where empathy is all over it You know, and this idea of shared experiences, this idea of understanding another's struggles and that being something that was, you know, sought after in in the novel, but also became frightening, you know, in, in the first film, of course, is really at the heart of it, too, which is like, you know, what does it mean to be human and empathy is what they decide. And then in this one, this idea of, you know, empathy is something measurable and something quantifiable and something that is deliberately supposed to be avoided. You know, if so that you don't become too human, Um, it's just really interesting. And I think that's part of why 2049, although thematically and aesthetically, it really is very different from 2019. It feels so much of a world with it because it's still asking these very deep questions questions, these metatextual questions that um, a lot of the time, I think we don't even realize we're asking ourselves. The first time that we saw 2049, I wasn't thinking about that. I, I, I wasn't thinking like, oh, this connects to the previous one because of this philosophical idea. And this reminds me of this this element in the book, you know, in the mood organ. Like I, that's, that wasn't something that I was thinking of, but it was something I was feeling very deeply and something that led to this feeling of like, oh, this is right. Like this is Blade Runner to me. And so I think that's part of why 2049 continues to live on as such a worthy sequel is because although it looks and feels somewhat different, it still asks questions like that and sets up this beautiful tableau for us to ask those questions ourselves. So yeah, I think the baseline test is more than a worthy addition to Blade Runner. I think considering how iconic the Voight-Kampff test is and was... It's amazing that the baseline test has become nearly as iconic in its own right, that it's become one of the first things people talk about when they see the film. Um, you know, in the, in the years, in the five years now since 2049 has come out, uh, you know, I've had multiple friends and family see it for the first time, especially when it was on Netflix recently. You know, a few months ago, uh, it was added in the U.S. to Netflix. And a lot of people who were in my, you know, circle who hadn't seen it yet saw it because it was on Netflix. It was the number one film on it for a while, and, uh, and so I got all these new texts from people who I wasn't always already talking to about Blade Runner, and the baseline test came up a lot of the time. People were like, "That scene in the room with the white thing, that was like so intense, wasn't it?" And it's and it speaks to us, you know, whether it speaks to us in terms of Blade Runner or in terms of ourselves. It's uh, it's really a worthy addition to the the Blade Runner canon. And, uh, and I'm really grateful that it and the film around it exists because
0: it gives us more and deeper of what we love. Indeed. Uh, and I just want to mention a couple things before we close. Uh, and I know we might have talk, talked about this before, but the idea like I think the baseline test really resonates with men. Um, because of the way we are raised as men in Western society to be less emotional, to be the breadwinner, to make sure we're doing our job. And I feel like that whole scene or both scenes is almost like when we talk to our fathers. How are you doing? Are you okay? What do you need? Obviously, you know, there are many different types of fathers. There's a lot of amazing fathers, you and Christian being two of them, who are emotional, who can engage emotionally. But a lot of men were raised by very emotionless fathers. And that scene really t- taps into what it's like to be a man in Western society, certainly in American society. Um, so I think that's something that we should think about and maybe bring up again at a certain point. Um, lastly, if you go on Facebook and maybe you're talking in Messenger and you write a certain amount of words, the algorithm will pick it up and it'll pop up a screen and it'll say, are you doing okay? Are you contemplating suicide? Do you need help? based off of what you've written. So again, it's a bit of an element of the baseline test. Always there listening, finding out, well, what are you talking about? What's going on? Are you okay? Are you Are you losing your empathy? Are you thinking about ending your life? So again, seeing elements of the inverse of the baseline test today. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see where technology goes 10, 15 years from now.
1: Yeah, and hopefully not quite as terrifying as it feels like after these two episodes. Holy shit, there's some doom and gloom on the shoulder of Orion lately, but it's okay because these movies ask those questions, you know?
0: Indeed, indeed.
1: Thank you, my friend, and thank you, everybody. Jamie and I are both traveling in Europe, of course, unfortunately not together um, yet, but we're going to be taking... Maybe
0: I'll show up in Italy. Maybe no, yeah, be going I'll pop in. over to Manchester.
1: <laughs> um, but we're, uh, you know, so there there might be a slight disruption again, uh, as we mentioned earlier. The, But if, if there is, it will only be like a one week shift, but we have a lot of content preloaded. So hopefully you won't notice much of anything. And again, if you are a patron of ours, you will see zero interruption because we have really prioritized getting a lot of Patreon content front loaded. So if you want to make sure you don't miss any of that, please go to blade runner Podcast.comslash support and you can sign up there. We are actually just before we started recording tonight, talking about some special gifts for our higher tier patrons who have been uh, patiently supporting us for extra money, but not too many extra perks for too long. So, um, you know, if you want to join at say the $12 level, um, you might even find some extra stuff coming your way. But that being said, yep, any support goes a long way. And for just $4, you get access to all of our recordings You get frame rate you get sublime noise you get shit show um and you get some special bonuses i'm going to do like a long play of a of an rpg on there just to sort of give it to patrons um so like there's all sorts of stuff coming out on that channel as well so make sure you join if you're interested thanks for listening everyone and we'll be back again soon see you soon
0: If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.